morning, everybody. It is a great pleasure to be here. I want to thank Pastor Zach just for the invitation to come, not only for the conference Friday and yesterday, but as well just to share something with you this morning. I, I don't apologize for asking if some of you might remember me and the work that I do in your prayers, especially the work that we have in translating the commentary I have into other languages. Uh, what I have is I have an online Bible commentary from Genesis to Revelation. Some people find it helpful. We have pastors who have been pastors for 40 years who use it. And we have teenagers who are just learning how to study the Bible use it. It's just something that helps to explain the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It's offered completely free. We don't even have paid ads on our website or anything like that. Now these resources, of course, they're appreciated in languages like English but they're really hard to find in languages other than English. So when we set out to say we want to translate that commentary into other languages, we had one priority, uh, and that was Spanish. Uh, so we have completed the translation of that commentary from Genesis to Revelation in Spanish. We've had a wonderful team of translators and proofreaders but we're also translating that Bible commentary into other languages. Arabic, Chinese, Farsi, German, Russian, French, Portuguese, Italian, other languages I can't even think of right now. Because again, people need good, free Bible resources in those languages too. I feel like God's hand of blessing is on that work of translation, but I'll tell you why I think God's hand of blessing is because I always ask people to pray for it. So I'm not expecting a half hour of war room intercession every day. Well, that would be awesome if you did it, but just make mention in prayer. Lord, bless Pastor David, the work of enduring word, especially the translation. If, if you would remember that, or some of you would remember that, it would be a great blessing to me, and I think it helps God's work go forward. Now, it's my privilege to bring you something from God's word here this morning. So as Pastor Zach said, would you please open your Bibles to Psalm 12, we're going to take a look at the entire psalm here this morning. Don't worry, it's only eight verses long. And let me pray before we begin our study of God's word. Father in heaven, what a precious thing it is to stand before people who love you, who love your word, who have open Bibles and are ready to hear what the Holy Spirit would speak to their hearts. And so Lord, I pray that you would use the words that I speak and you would work through and above and beyond my words to speak by your spirit to those who are your people. And Lord, if there's any among uh, the gathered here this morning who have yet to give their lives to Jesus Christ, I pray that you would especially speak to them through your word, by your spirit. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you take a look at Psalm 12, the first thing I want you to notice is that it is a psalm with a title to it. Did you see that? Psalm 12, but before properly verse 1 begins, it says, to the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. I just want to remind you that those sort of prescripts or titles to the psalms, those are in the ancient Hebrew text. That's part of the psalm. It's part of God's inspired word for that song. And what this tells us is that David wrote this to the chief musician. 
Now, there's been some, you know, just sort of wondering, who is this chief musician? And it very well could have been sort of the choir leader for ancient Israel. At the temple and at the tabernacle that stood before the temple, the, the priests and the Levites would lead the congregation of Israel in singing, just very much like we enjoyed together here this morning. And there was sort of a chief choir director, so to speak, or, or music leader. And maybe the chief musician was that person. But i got to say, I sort of favor an alternative idea. That while it might have included that person, David's thinking of the chief musician, the author of all music. The chief musician is the Lord himself. I mean, isn't music God's creation? And like anything God has created... Satan has a way of taking it and twisting it and perverting it for his own purposes. But music itself is a beautiful gift of God and can be used for his glory. And so David's thinking, Lord, you are the chief musician. You're the one who invented music. I'm writing this unto you. And then he mentions the instrument upon which he composed this psalm, an eight-stringed harp. And then it identifies the author of the psalm, a psalm of David. About half of the 150 psalms are directly attributed to David. Maybe he wrote some of the ones that aren't attributed to him. But he is the dominant author, humanly speaking, through the book of Psalms. And before we do anything else, I just sort of want you to consider how amazing that is. Do you know something of the life of this man David? Of course you know the story of David and Goliath. And that shows you something about David, what kind of young boy he was and how God used him. But I want you to know that after David slew Goliath, he went on to have a career in the army of Israel as what we would call today an elite special forces soldier. That David was a man, I don't know how to say this tastefully, he killed many men on the field of battle with his own bare hands. I mean, he was a warrior. As I said before, an elite special forces soldier who could write psalms as beautiful as we read in Psalm 12 and Psalm 23 and many other psalms. Isn't that amazing? I don't know where you're going to find that combination, special forces songwriter, anywhere else other than an amazing man like David right here. Let's keep all that in mind as we take a look at the first couple of verses as this psalm that speaks to us of the pure and precious word of God. Psalm 12, verses 1 and 2. Help, Lord. Maybe I should just stop right there. Isn't that a great prayer? Now, there's this tendency for students of the Psalms. They always want to try to figure out when and under what circumstances David wrote a psalm. Now, sometimes the psalm tells us, oh, this psalm was written in this occasion, this psalm was written in the other occasion. But, but even the ones where we're not told directly in the psalms, there's sort of this tendency, okay, where did this come in David's life? And I got to tell you, the, the opening doesn't give you any help. Because David was always in trouble and always crying out, help, Lord. Think about it. This man, so beloved of the Lord, experienced a lot of trouble. Had to trust God a lot for his own life, for his future, for the people around him. This was a prayer that David was very familiar with. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases. 
for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. David looked around at the situation around him, and he says, it feels to me like the godly man ceases. Where are the godly people? I can't find him anywhere. It's as if the faithful men and women have disappeared from among the sons of men. Now, if I had to place this psalm at any particular place in David's life, I'll tell you what I would suggest, and I'm just doing this as a speculation, but I would place it in David's life when he was a commander, a special forces leader in the army of Israel, loyal to King Saul, but King Saul was very jealous of David. And King Saul was growing in his animosity and hatred of David and would essentially put out a contract on the life of David, leading to David's many, many years as a fugitive. But that time when David was still in the court of King Saul... You know, whenever you have a king, whenever you have a ruler, you got a lot of people who want to suck up to that ruler, don't you? Don't you have people who want to inform on other people just to please the leader, to tell the leader what they want to hear? That happens. And you can imagine David having to live with all this gossip and backbiting and attacks behind his back. David would probably say, I'd rather face people on the field of battle. I'd rather face sharp swords on the field of battle than I would face their sharp tongues when they backbite and gossip against me. And David looked around and felt like, there's no godly people anywhere. The faithful have disappeared from among the sons of men. Now right away, don't we sense the relevance of a psalm like that to our life today? Don't you look around sometimes today and have that same heart? You say, the godly man ceases. Where are the godly people? You say, the the faithful have disappeared from among the sons of men. It it sometimes feels like there's this tsunami of ungodliness crashing over us, and the people of God are scattered and isolated. And then in verse 2, David thinks about the ungodly people in his midst. He says, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. David's thinking about the wicked words of the ungodly. And friends, oh, how the ungodly like to speak. How they like to speak with flattering lips and a double heart. Verse 2 says, they speak idly, everyone with his neighbor. I would say with my tongue a little bit in my cheek, this is David's prophetic anticipation of social media. Everyone speaking idly with his neighbor. Flattering lips, a double heart. You know, the essence of flattering lips is that people say what they want others to hear. And there's a lot of people like that who talk today. They they don't speak with transparency of heart. They just speak to please others. They just play to the crowd. Whatever is required of them in the culture, those are the words they'll repeat. They just carry out the party line. They don't stand for truth. And they have, as David said in verse 2, a double heart. Sometimes we see that in the church, don't we? That double heart, literally in the Hebrew, I've been told that it means a heart and a heart. And those kind of people have two hearts. They have one for Sunday and another for the rest of the week. 
They have one heart for church talk, another heart for the profane speech that they use during the week. They have one heart for Bible teaching and another heart for their browser history. David understood that there's people like that out in the world today and so often they express their ungodliness with the words they say. They mock, they scoff, They're not afraid to speak against the Lord. They're not afraid to speak against Jesus Christ. And if they can get a laugh out of it, all the better they feel. David heard the ungodly and the unceasing talk from the wicked. And friends, their voices are everywhere today. You know, there's something good about our modern internet, social media age is that it gives some kind of platform to just about everybody, doesn't it? There's something really bad about our modern internet social media age, is it gives a platform to speak to just about everybody, doesn't it? That is a two-edged sword, is it not? But you hear a lot of ungodly people flapping their lips in mockery, in unbelief, and scoffing against God and the things of God. Well, what was David's prayer about that? Verses 3 and 4 are a prayer of David. I don't know if you want to make this your prayer, but let's just read these two verses. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? David felt helpless over these destructive chatterers. So what did he do? He found his refuge in the Lord. Lord, I can't stop them from speaking, so I'm going to appeal to you. Lord, why don't you shut them up? I kind of like that, that David was in some sense a man of free speech. He said, I'm not going to shut you up, but I'll pray that the Lord does it. And if the Lord does it, then it's in his hands. Matter of fact, David wanted God to cut off the proud tongue and those flattering lips. And friends, let's not, let's not fool ourselves about this. It's possible for us to have the proud tongue and the flattering lips. Look, if that's you, I don't say this to condemn you. I just want to guide you to what God wants to do in your life. If we read these words and you say, all too often that's me with the proud tongue, with the flattering lips. I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to do what Isaiah did, or at least by analogy have the same thing carried over to you. Do you remember Isaiah in his uh, spiritual experience where he was carried up into heaven and he understood that he was a man of unclean lips? This is in Isaiah chapter 6. God sent an angel with a live coal from the altar of God and he touched Isaiah's lips with it and he was purified. I think that would be pretty painful, don't you? But there's no mention of pain in Isaiah's account. There's just a mention of the purity that God brought to him. Lord, but burn away my flattering lips, Lord. Burn away my proud tongue. Lord, I just want to speak in a way that would glorify you. 
But it was hard for David because he understood how wicked his opponents were. Look at verse 4. This is how they spoke. With our tongue we will prevail. Who is Lord over us? David despised these destructive tongues, not only for what they said, but for the the pride that made them so difficult to stop. It's as if these people said, you can't shut me up. I'm going to say whatever I want. And then even more blasphemy, they said, we can't even be stopped by God. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? They arrogantly spoke against God and his people. And friends, that kind of talk still fills the earth today. By the way, before we move on to verse 5, I just want to give you another thought here from verse 4. Did you see that question in verse 4? Who is Lord over us? That's something that in David's psalm, that's something that the wicked person says in defiance to God. God doesn't rule over me. I'll do my own thing. But friends, there's an answer for the believer to that question, is there not? Brothers, sisters, people of God, who is Lord over us? And we say the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord over us. We accept his lordship. We belong to him. He's purchased us, body, soul, and spirit. We're bought with a price and therefore obligated to glorify God in our bodies, including our lips, our tongues. We're meant to glorify him. So even though David understood that in terms of the arrogant words of the wicked, we believers, we have a response to that question, who is Lord over us? Now, God is going to speak in verse 5. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. This was the prayer of David. David said, Lord, I'm crying out to you, and now God brought his answer in verse 5. He said, David, I understand. You're the poor and needy one. You've cried out to me. I'm going to arise and come to your help. You know, those destructive talkers, they spoke as they pleased, and they sort of shook their fist against God, saying, God can't stop us. And God looked down from heaven. He said, you can't stop me. I'm going to arise. I'm going to do as I please. I'm going to act on behalf of my poor and needy, and I'm going to uh, uh, rescue them in their need. I'm going to, as verse 5 says, I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. David believed that that was God's word for him. You're going to deliver me from these destructive critics, these talkers. The, The words of man are going to be dealt with. Now, friends, I believe verse 6, well, maybe I should say verse 5. It's an important transition point in this psalm. Because we saw David uh, bewailing the wicked words of man earlier in the psalm. Now David's going to look to the solution. Look, do the words of man have you down? You know what you need to do? You need to look to the words of God. What a contrast between the words of man and the words of God. We saw what David thought and what God thinks of the words of man in the first five verses. Now starting at verse six, let's take a look 
at the words of God. Verses 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver tried in a furnace of earth. Purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. That's what God says about his own word. In contrast to the idle, two-faced, lying, and proud lips of David's adversaries, God's words are pure. They're pure as if they were silver that's been purified or refined seven times over. And David here is using a little bit of a word play, or at least uh, in the concept of it. You know, seven was a number that often represented completion or perfection, like seven days in a week. And what he's saying, completely pure, purified seven times over, just conjures up the idea that it can't get any more pure than this. That's how pure God's word is. And when you want to compare the vain words of man and the pure words of God, well, there's really no comparison, is there? Theologically, we can say that the words of the Lord are inerrant that they're without error. God moved through the human authors of the Bible, guiding them to record exactly what he wanted them to, but he did it without destroying the expression of their own personality in the process. Isn't that wonderful how the personality of the authors of the Bible comes through? When you're reading Isaiah, you know it's Isaiah. You're reading Paul, you know it's Paul. You're reading here the Psalms. You know certain Psalms that are of David. You get to know something of the personality of the authors. Yet God used those human personalities and guided them to perfectly express his own words. And at the end of it all, the words of the Lord are pure words. And may I emphasize this, that the words themselves are inspired. Not merely the ideas of the Bible. Over and over again in the Bible, we see that it matters if a word, for example, whether a word is plural or singular. Paul makes a big deal about that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, over the singular seed or the plural seeds. It's not just the idea, it's the word that's important. It's a big deal about which verb tense is used. When Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 22, he pointed out how important it was that God said, I am. Not I was, or not I will be, but I am. And how important that was. The verb tense mattered. Jesus said that the smallest letters in the word of God are important. He said not one jot or one tittle would pass away from God's word. That's like our way of saying, not one dot over an I or one crossing of a T. None of that will pass away. This is how important God's word is to him. The words of God are fully inspired. They are pure words. It's not as if this book is a mixture of some inspired words and some uninspired ones. No, the collection together can be called Pure words. And let me tell you what this means, friend, practically. 
The word of God can be trusted in every sense. You can trust the word of God. It's pure. It's been tested. Now we can trust that God has tested his own word, but through the century it's also been tested by students, by scholars, by critics, by by doubters throughout the centuries, and the word of God still stands. I, I like an old phrase that's been used many times. It says that the word of God is like an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Now you know what an anvil is, don't you? I doubt that you have one at your house. But you've seen them in cartoons. That's the thing that's always dropping on Wiley Coyote's head. You know, the anvil is something that the blacksmith uses. Once I visited a pastor who, as a side job before he, he, he was able to be supported full-time by the ministry, he made horseshoes. And so he had an anvil at his house and sort of this, this metal working situation. And he let me grab onto a piece of metal and heat it up and just bang on it on the anvil. It felt very manly to do that. Let me tell you, that anvil doesn't wear out when the hammer hits it. No, what wears out? The hammers. You don't have to change the anvil. You have to change the hammers. That is how strong the word of God is. It says to the doubter and the critic, wail away if you want, it's going to stand. The word of the Lord stands forever. If I could read you a quote here from Charles Spurgeon, he said this. He said, the Bible has passed through the furnace of persecution, literary criticism, philosophic doubt, and scientific discovery, and it has lost nothing but those human interpretations which cling to it as alloy to precious ore. The experience of saints has tried it in every conceivable manner, but not a single doctrine or promise has been consumed in the most excessive heat. It's true, isn't it? After centuries of the most vicious attacks and heaviest guns that the world can bring against the word of God, it still stands. That's because God's word in verse 7 proves true. Did you see that line in verse 7? You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them. You see, one of the great miracles of the Word of God is not only the inspiration of God in producing the the original manuscripts, the original words that David wrote or Paul wrote or Matthew wrote or any of the biblical authors, but one of the great miracles that God has done is to preserve those words through the centuries. It's a beautiful, it's a powerful thing. God preserves his own words. He did not only give his word to mankind, but his providential hand has protected the existence and the integrity of his own word through the centuries. This can be demonstrated in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. You take a look at them and the comparison with the Dead Sea Scrolls and what existed before that, and it shows that the word of God has remained its integrity in regard to the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament through the centuries. The same has been true in a, proven true in a different way, having to do with the New Testament, the Greek scriptures. Because of the thousands of manuscripts that exist of the ancient Greek scriptures, they can cross-check and compare and see the purity of the text and how there is very, very little of it that is held in question. No, friends, again and again and again, we can say, you look at the Bible and it is pure, it is God's word given to us. 
And God says this, of course, David was speaking of what we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. But the same applies to the New Testament because the New Testament church very consciously understood that God was producing a New Testament through them, the authoritative writings of the apostles and their associates. They understood clearly that these were to be considered the scriptures and that is shown in the New Testament again and again and again. That God was laying a foundation through the authoritative apostles and prophets of the New Testament. Scriptures that were to be read in the churches just as the Old Testament was to be read. And we know that the early Christians loved and prized these writings so much that the earliest Christian writers quoted the New Testament again and again. It's because it was valuable to them. Matter of fact, it's been said, and friends, I haven't done this study on my own, but I've just read some of the reference material, that if you were to take a collection of seven early Christian writers, it is said that they quote or reference the New Testament collectively among the writings of these seven early Christian writers. They quote or reference the New Testament more than 36,000 times. And if you were to completely eliminate the New Testament, you could reconstruct almost all of it just from those quotations given in the early Christian writers. Friends, it's an amazing thing. Why? Because again, look at what it says there in verse 7. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them. I, I got to know my wife when I was just out of high school. I, I didn't know much, but I knew I wanted to serve the Lord. And so there was a three-month Bible school that Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa was putting on. And so I said, well, I want to go to that. So I went up to a conference facility that they have up in the San Bernardino Mountains way back. This is in the early 1980s, just out of high school. And I said, great. And I, I, I gained something wonderful. Look, it was only a three-month Bible school program. It, it wasn't much depth, but for what it was, it was great for me. But one of the greatest things from it was that I met a, a young woman there from Sweden who I kind of, well, I was sweet on her. And we had a nice introduction at our three months of Bible school. And we kept that relationship going over the next couple years. And after a little bit more than two years after Bible school, we were married. And my wife, Ingalil, we're still married to this day. And we just, we just loved serving the Lord together. But this was a relationship of a long distance. You know, I was in Southern California... And most of the two years that we were apart uh, from the time we met to the time we got married, most of those two plus years, she was in Sweden. That's where she grew up. And let me tell you, this was in the days before cell phones, before text messages, before email, before FaceTime. I mean, you might as well be talking about Pony Express days. And it was also in those days, and those of you who are old enough who can remember, it was expensive to make a phone call to Europe. I mean, look, I, I didn't have the money to call her very often. It was very rare that I could do a phone call. So what do we do? Well, I wrote her a lot of letters. I wrote her a lot of letters, just talking and pouring out my heart. 
And uh, you know what? She has kept those letters to this day. She's kept them and preserved them, just, just like it says there in verse 7. Why? Because it was something precious to her. Now, sometimes I think, I've got to find those letters and see if there's anything incriminating in them. <laughs> they're, they're, they're stored away someplace at the house. I, I don't know where, and I think my wife likes it that way. But she's kept and preserved all those letters. Why? Because it was important to her. It was precious to her. Now, friends, can you imagine, as sweet as that is, and as wonderful as that is, how much more regard God has for his word? He's kept it, and he's preserved it, and he's passed it on to us today. You see, we have this revelation from God as something that we need to receive, we need to believe, and we need to live in. And let me tell you why. It's not so that we can be mere Bible experts. It's not so that we can win at Bible trivia contests. It's because the real living author of the book comes and meets us in his word. Friends, God's word is a place of relationship with him. When I sent those letters to my wife and she read them, there was something very relational in them. And therefore, she treasured them. She prized them. She, she couldn't wait to read them. And so was I with any letter that she sent me. I felt the same way. Could you imagine me getting a, a, a letter from my dear girlfriend who lived in distant Sweden? It comes in the mail. I get it. I throw it on the counter and say, I don't know. I'll get to that in a few days. You can't, I didn't do a single thing until I had opened it and read it and read it two or three more times. Why? Because there was something relational in it all. Friends, I, I want you to trust the word of God. I want you to love the word of God, but, but, but not to exalt anybody as a Bible expert, but instead of say, I want you to love and trust Jesus Christ who reveals himself to us in and through his word. Jesus is so identified with the word of God that in John chapter 1, he's revealed to us as the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. The logos, the word himself. Jesus comes and meets his people in his word, just as he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So I hope you catch some of my passion for why I want you to trust God's word. Why I want you to say, yes, there's the words of man out there, and man speaks and sometimes won't shut up. But here's God's word. And I'm going to find wisdom I'm going to find comfort. I'm going to find strength. I'm going to find glory in the word of God because God himself will mediate those things to me in and through his word. Because Jesus Christ is the living word. Right, let's take a look at verse 8, the last verse of the chapter. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. 
Well, that's sort of a cheery note to end the psalm on, isn't it? But listen, I've got to be honest with you. There's something I love about the realism here. That David realizes that having God's word and understanding the glory, the purity, the preservation of God's word, having it all before him, it doesn't take away the problems of this world. No, there's still wicked people out there, but now I am strengthened to stand against them. Friends, we live in a wicked world. It's a world that needs the word of God, and it's a world that can be transformed by the power of God working in and through his word. We can take great comfort in knowing that it's been this dark, or even darker before, and the light of God's word has shone brightly. Late in the 12th century, in what today is modern-day France, there was a wealthy businessman. His name was Peter Valdo. He felt guilty about his empty and materialistic life. So you know what he did? God got a hold of his life. He, he, he provided for his family. He gave away almost everything that he had. And he hired a priest to translate the Bible into the common language, which was a radical thing in that day. And he began to simply read and teach the Bible. And soon people came to follow him. His followers were known as the Valdenzis, after his name, Peter Valdo. And they began to multiply across Europe. And it was common for Valdensian laymen to have memorized whole books of the Bible. And it was common for their ministers to have memorized the entire New Testament. It was a revolution that God was bringing in and through his word. In the 14th century... There was an Englishman named John Wycliffe. He translated the Bible into English, and he inspired hundreds of preachers. They were known as lollards to travel all around England to simply teach the Bible to the common people in a way they could understand. They spread that Wycliffe Bible and its teaching all over, and they were terribly persecuted for doing so. Friends, in those days... The great and fancy people, they neglected the Bible. You could be a PhD of Christian theology in those days of medieval Europe and know nothing of the Bible. And then Martin Luther came along in the 16th century. Martin Luther had never even seen a Bible until he was 20 years old. And he saw it at the university library. But Martin Luther came to love the Bible. In his first year at the monastery, he received a Bible that was bound in red leather, and he was encouraged to study it. Later on, in one of his table talks, Luther claimed that he had read that Bible so thoroughly that he could tell you what was on every page. Do you know that? Have you had a Bible that you've had for a long time? And you say, look, I can't tell you exactly what chapter and verse that is, but it's on the lower left-hand corner of that page. And that's how it was with Luther in that Bible. And when you've had a Bible a long time, that's how it is for you. You see, Luther went to that monastery library after they took the Bible away from him so he could go on to so-called deeper things. And he read the Bible all that he could. He said that he read the Bible through twice every year, and he did so almost all his adult life. Now, friends, this is the fuel that brings light to dark times. We have been given 
an incalculable gift with the Bibles that we have in front of us. But it's really up to us to use it. God has kept and preserved his word. It's true, just like verse 8, that vileness is exalted among the sons of men. That's true. And I don't know if that's going to change in the near term. But even with the precious and pure word of God available to men, many of the sons of men would still prefer that vileness is exalted. But we, the people of God, we can be different. It's almost as if David lays down a challenge. You sons of men, you go ahead and exalt vileness, but we're going to exalt the pure and precious word of God, and we'll see what God does with that in the end. And friends, you'll see that God draws the people who love his word, honor his word, meet with Jesus in and through his word, and God establishes them and strengthens them. It's as if the world does their worst. And God, in and through his word, working by his spirit, he does his best. And at the end of it all, the people of God stand and are in a joyful place in their Lord. I want that to be you. So, read your Bibles. How much did you read your Bible? I'll just give you a one-word answer to that. More. (laughs) And meet Jesus. In his word. Father, that's my prayer. Lord, your word does speak of those who are always learning but never coming to the truth. Your word speaks of those who have a form of godliness but deny the power of it. Lord, we, we never want that to be us. So, Lord, we're not talking about exalting a bare Bible knowledge. We simply ask that you would give us a greater hunger to read your love letter to us. To cherish it, to prize it. Lord, you've kept and preserved your word. It is pure. It's permanent. Lord, help us to read it, to receive it, and to believe it. In Jesus' name, amen.